Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis. The reason I acquired Twitter is because it is important to the future of civilization to have a common digital town square where a wide range of beliefs can be debated in a healthy manner without resorting to violence. That's what Elon Musk said back in October. He clearly had lofty ambitions for the site, but it's fair to say things aren't seeming to go to plan. The use of racial slurs on the platform has soared of late, according to the Centre for Countering Digital Hate. Making verification a paid-for bolt-on has seen companies and celebs impersonated with real-life consequences, such as plummeting stock prices for businesses. Staff have been fired acrimoniously and en masse, whilst those remaining have been told to commit to going extremely hardcore, whatever that might mean. Then Musk himself has even suggested that Twitter could go bankrupt. Is there any turning this thing around, and was Twitter ever truly built to last? Here to discuss this with me is Marcus Gilroy Ware, author of Filling the Void, Emotion, Capitalism and Social Media, and a lecturer in creative digital media at SOAS. Marcus, welcome to The Bunker. Thanks for having me. Marcus, did you ever think that Musk might really have good intentions for Twitter? And does that actually just depend on how you look at it anyway? I'm tempted to say another way of looking at that question is to ask how cynical Musk is being, because he's kind of widely known for, you know, I think seeing himself in the context of a certain kind of, you know, entrepreneurial pseudo logic. And so I think that, you know, in that world, a world which frequently also misconstrues the history of freedom of speech and the functioning of freedom of speech as an idea, it's possible if we're being generous to say maybe he has good intentions, you know, according to that, you know, vast array of, of kind of mistakes. That sort of tech bro libertarian streak. Exactly, exactly. In the sense that technology and entrepreneurialism are what can save humanity. So, yeah, a kind way of looking at this would be to say that, that, that that's kind of where he's kind of going with this. But if mm. that's true, then what was, in a way, what was the problem with Twitter before? Why did he have to, to buy it? One can't help but say, well, in that context, actually, Twitter was sort of already providing the things that, you know, that quote that you read out claims he wants Twitter to, to become. And so given some of the things that he's done since buying the platform, for example, you know, suppressing people who have criticized him or, or kind of, it's hard not to read this in a sense that maybe he just kind of wants to stand up for people whose speech is a bit more kind of extreme and marginal and often reactionary. Um, and that that's really what's going on. And he doesn't see, he's not capable of seeing the issues with that kind of reactionary speech and the kinds of harm that it can do. Yeah. And, you know, if you see freedom of speech in the context of this sort of historical John Stuart Mill kind of view of, of freedom of speech, in which everyone, you know, only, only certain people are invited to the mm. conversation anyway, and those people all have a certain kind of education, then it's kind of no wonder that, that so many unforeseen problems have arisen since um, since he set in that direction. The chaos has surprised me a little bit, but, you know, has it shocked you or do you think his kind of, his ideology doesn't really seem to have a, a North Star? So is it just, did it seem obvious to you that it would be a little bit scattergun what he would do with the platform? You know, I, I hate to be one of those people who says, I told you so. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I also hate to be someone who has a sort of darker outlook. But I think if you put together what we know about Musk as a quote unquote businessman, in terms of his kind of impulsive style. And, you know, he's claimed to be an avid reader, but I would really like to know what he's actually reading yeah. because I don't think that <laughs> clearly there's not a very strong conceptual grounding as far as thinking about yeah. complex issues around, you know, political conversations and, and at the moment of history we're in and so forth. 
he represents the death of the political in a way, um, this sort of, you know, technological utopian kind of view of, and capitalistic and entrepreneurial utopian. Mm. So I think uh, he's long represented that. And also then sort of adjacent to this is the sense that actually there's, uh, there are big problems in the digital platform business model that have been there mm. for a long time. Um, Facebook is also, or Meta is also having problems at the moment yeah. as far as their, you know, share price and revenue and advertisers and stuff mm. like that. And there are researchers like Tim Huang who have pointed out that in a way the whole model is a ticking time bomb yeah. and that, you know, something was coming that was going to probably be a corrective. I mean, I skip the ads, you skip the ads, mm. everybody skips and blocks the ads. Is, uh, is advertising really going to fund yeah. our so-called public spheres in the long run? There was going to be some problem anyway. And But just Elon Musk is fundamentally underqualified to navigate any digital platform through these issues. So it's not a shock. Do you think it's that kind of marriage between, you know, a something being a force for public good and capitalism that doesn't really match up and clearly you know he would like to make money from this website but in the long run you know for these sites to fulfill the the wider purpose they perhaps should does that mean that actually maybe they shouldn't be particularly profitable well i mean i think what your question speaks to is a long-standing tension between the interests of private capital mm. and the interests you know the common good right the interests yes. of, of quote unquote the people one of the reasons these digital platforms are interesting to me is that they represent a certain kind of privatized infrastructure mm. that where that battle around, you know, can privatized public services in general can still continue to keep both sets of stakeholders happy, the people who mm. use the service and the shareholders who've, you know, invested uh, in whatever way in the commercial mm. success of that, of that. And, you know, notwithstanding the issues I alluded to earlier as far as the general issue with the with this model, you know, Twitter was making money. You know, Meta does make money. It's not like they're loss-making anymore. They found ways to kind of to extract some profit here. I mean, we've seen this in the past. You know, I remember when I was growing up, Bebo, and then there was MySpace, and then for a brief amount of time, there was Tumblr. And, you know, is there, you know, to be... To be fair to Musk, which is a phrase I didn't expect to to say more than once in this podcast, but, you know, is it totally Musk's fault right now what's happening? Or has he just come in at a sort of a point in time that was inevitably always going to happen? You know, do you think these sites just hit a sort of critical mass where they, you know, can't make more money and they can't really develop much further and people people get tired of them and shareholders go, well, this doesn't seem to be the cash cow I thought it once was for a little while. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I would say that Musk is the wrong person at the wrong time, mm. but I don't think the disaster is entirely of his making. He's just, you know, the, the wrong person at the wrong time who's going to mm. sort of take those potential issues or, or kind of growing issues and make them into an existential crisis for the platform. You've written about fake news and misinformation. Uh, a major yes. issue has been this ability to sort of game the verification process on Twitter with the whole Twitter blue thing, you know, where for about £7 a month you can just say you're whoever you want to say you are. You know, in that broader context of misinformation, just how much of a concern do you think that is if that stays in place? Well, you asked me earlier if I was shocked, and I said no, roundly (laughs) no. But one of the things that has shocked me because it is that I, you know, even Musk and the stupidity with which I associate him, <laughs> I, I'm amazed that the verification 
tick of all mm. things is the thing they decided to monetize first. Because given the sensitivity of the issue of misinformation on digital platforms, and given the sensitivity of our political moment in general, and all these very finely balanced elections, you know, think about Brazil, the French election last year, you know, the, obviously the midterms in the US that just happened and all sorts of other uh, electoral contests, you know, in those kinds of very finely balanced situations, you know, misinformation is, that's where misinformation can be really damaging. You know, I don't buy, I don't buy the thing that you can, you can buy an election, but I think that you can make a small difference, you know, with 100,000 mm. voters out of several million, and that might be enough to push you over the edge. And, um, you know, obviously the, the issue with the blue tick, as all of us Twitter users, I think, implicitly understand, is that although it's intended as a verification tool, it became a kind of stand-in icon for a certain type of celebrity. Yeah. And if you get your blue tick, you're, you're sort of recognized by the public mm. in a certain sort of way. And plenty of great journalists that I know aren't prominent enough. So despite the kind of veracity and reliability of the yeah. work they do and the importance of verification that in the work that they undertake don't have a blue tick mm. so it's, it's got this kind of weird dual you know dual role that it plays and unfortunately i think what what they're doing in, in making it this eight dollars a month subscription is is that they're playing to the kind of let's commodify celebrity mm. um they're, they're trying to make it so that you can sort of self-certify if you like as yeah. a celebrity well as technologists they ought to know the limitations of self-certification to start with because in cryptography for example it doesn't work super well uh, because mm. it doesn't have the very thing that you need which is credibility but i also ought to know i mean elon musk is something of a celebrity i suppose he ought to also know that you can't just call yourself a celebrity and become yeah. one someone comes <laughs> up to you and says i'm really famous you know that's usually a sign that they're kind of yeah you know they perhaps aren't <laughs> um, and then combine that with the kind of whole issues of you know a whole issue around misinformation yeah um, it seems like a very strange thing to make that the place where they extract value. I mean, why not open up the editing of my, of my past tweets or provide a better set of search tools or, you know, small publishing affordances, bring video to, to Twitter a bit more. There's lots of things they could have done that would, I think, have been really appreciated by Twitter users. Is Twitter, you know, truly at risk of going bankrupt or is that Musk being kind of hyperbolic as ever when he makes statements like that? Well, any business that, that can't afford to pay employees it needs to carry on trading is, you know, at, at, at risk of that. And I think obviously there's been a huge wave of, of sackings mm. and then also other people resigning as well. And the, the financial future of, of Twitter doesn't look good. They're going to have to do a lot of work. And even, even then, I think the idea that Twitter will kind of go back to being on an even keel and being, being the kind of, you know, digitally mediated public conversation that we all so loved, you know, I think that's, that's kind of far-fetched, but Twitter could survive. The other thing I'd say is, of course, in America, Chapter 11 bankruptcy doesn't necessarily mean its end. It means that you then have to kind of administer your finances according to the supervision of the court for a period of time, and that you can sort of come back from it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm dubious because I, I think that we'd have, to, we'd have to see a real change in direction and we'd have to see someone with a very good kind of operational and political strength in 
and experienced in running digital platforms come in to help out. Mm. I mean, I'm no fan of Sheryl Sandberg, but they need someone like that you know, to sort of say, <laughs> here's what you do right now to save the platform, reassure your advertisers, get your users coming back on side, look at, you know, maybe some of the things that people are going to Mastodon for, maybe we can reassure them that they'll find that here as well, set up a, a board, you know, there's all sorts of things they could try to do to kind of limit the damage, and none of them are happening. So that that is definitely worrying. It's easy for, you know, people in our kind of sphere sometimes to maybe get super bogged down in just how influential Twitter is. On a more wide level looking at politics, would Twitter's demise really have as big an impact as maybe people within the media are suggesting it would? That's a very interesting question. I mean, I think in a way we sort of have to think historically about what was politics like before Twitter, before digital platforms became such a key part of how we mediate Hmm. politics. But also that was a different historical moment politically and and culturally as well. So Hmm. it's, it's, it's an exercise in imagination, isn't it? You know, obviously, those of us who study the internet always get a little bit vexed by the ways in which the internet is held to be kind of exceptional and, and new and all the rest of it, when it actually quite often it's it's reproducing aspects of media discourse that were true with radio, for example, or, you know, TV. I mean, think about the whole thing of sort of Twitter revolutions. Um, it was held to be exceptional and novel and amazing and giving people back their democratic power and all the rest of it, and it was nothing of the kind. So in a way, if we lose Twitter, we'd also have to maybe be able to rethink some of that kind of discourse around technology, especially if the world kind of continues on as normal, which which it, it might. And certainly, you know, I think there are issues around misinformation and digital platforms generally. But if you didn't have digital platforms, there wouldn't be it wouldn't be as easy for misinformation to spread. But as I argue in my in my book about misinformation, you know, misinformation comes from a structural place within our political landscape. It's you know, it comes from distrust, it comes from suspicion, yeah. it comes from the abuse of power, the corruption of sort of you know global market driven shareholder oriented systems. So you know, taking Twitter out of that equation, the, the drivers of, of, of those problems are still there. And hmm. um, so I don't know whether this is a yes or a no. It's neither. I mean, <laughs> things would look different, but they'd also look the same. Hmm. I've spotted that you've moved to Mastodon, which a lot of people seem to be, well, a lot of people that are on Twitter seem to be doing. Do you think that has the ability to be the next big thing? It wouldn't be the next big thing in the same way, because it, I don't think it is. I mean, it's a code base. It's a, it's a single code base, but it's not one big architecture. Right? Mm. It has this kind of federated structure. And that means that, for example, no one can ever buy it out. The combination of a federated architecture and code that, you know, is, is, is open source makes that impossible. I think it, for some people, it has been there in the background as a Twitter alternative for a while. Certain thinkers who I've learned a lot from about these things moved away from Twitter towards that, such mm-hmm. as Aral Barkhan, some time ago. Um, it remains to be seen how Twitter-like or not it is. But I think in the meantime, as we're all kind of considering these existential questions around Twitter, it's kind of necessary to think about what the alternatives are. And that's the one people have gone to because it's in terms of features, it's it's the closest. But I, I have no great hopes around, around Mastodon. I mean, I think it really depends on the level to which people embrace it and the openness of it as a code base. If they're going to add features that we want in the same way that you know, a commercial company might do, then that's great. But, you know, that's that's where you come back to, like, learn to code, right? If you don't, mm. if you want it, code it yourself. I, I don't know. 
don't know if that's going to wash with people who already have busy mm. jobs and under pressure and all the rest of it. I mean, Jack Dorsey, the one-time CEO of Twitter, says he's also creating a new platform, and that okay. platform also has a federated architecture a bit like Mastodon, mm. though I doubt it will be open source. Uh, so he's trying to, in a, in a way, respond to some of the shortcomings of Twitter by creating something new. But, you know, who knows whether it will take off? Mm. It's impossible to speculate. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get episodes ad-free and early, as well as access to exclusive merchandise. This is Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me in the bunker. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis. The producers were Alex Reese and Jet Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.